0: And Luke's going to come up and give us the message. Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to be here with you all this morning. If we've never met, my name is Luke. I serve here in a number of ways. Um, House group, young adult ministry, school of kingdom ministry, the internship, some other stuff, etc. And so... I get the honor to continue the series we're in right now on identity. And if you were here last week, you know that we're actually in kind of like a sub-series of identity, which is identity and sexuality. And the topic that I'm going to be basically exclusively focusing on this morning is the topic of sexual orientation and gender identification. And what I want to first say is that My attitude right now is not to be kind of like the expert, the person with all the answers for everything. I don't have all the solutions to stuff. Um, Really, what I just want to do is share with you all some stuff that I've experienced and part of my kind of like intellectual journey. I'll explain that in a second. And allow for a deeper awareness and a deeper understanding to exist surrounding this issue because a lot of the negativity and a lot of the dysfunction and a lot of just the you know general like ickiness it's almost the best way that i can describe it between christians and member of the lgbt community and churches and pastors and um, political activists, all of that, a lot of it just comes from from not understanding each other and a lack of understanding and a lack of, an, of awareness. So um, that's kind of what my heart is this morning. As I said, I feel like I have kind of a unique perspective on this issue because um, from ages 21 to 22, I believed that Relationships between men and men and women and women were not only okay, but blessed by God. That was like my theology as a Christian. And I believed um, that uh, changing genders or changing sexes, changing your sex, going through medical assistance to do that, I believed all of that was um, blessed by God. I believed that was God's will for a while. And so... A couple of, that was a couple, for a couple of years in college, and then the um, last five years or so, my beliefs have kind of switched back to thinking no, I really do believe that when God created marriage in Genesis 2 and said that it was between a man and a woman, that that's how he intended it to remain forever. And I, um, so I believe that now, and I do believe that gender and sex are not two different issues, that they are um, the same thing in God's eyes. But for a couple of years, as a passionate follower of Jesus, I didn't have those beliefs. And so really what I want to do is kind of share with you all what brought me to that place, why I abandoned what we might call the more traditional view on sexual orientation and gender identification, and then um, share with you all what kind of like made me flip again, okay? Okay. So what I want to start by doing is kind of defining this community of people. You know, you may have heard you know, the term homosexuality is what you hear a lot in churches. And that term is completely insufficient to describe what we're talking about here. It only gives us a small piece of the pie. In fact, the, you may have heard the acronym LGBT or LGBTQ or some variation of it. I did some research. This is the acronym Um, that is like most up-to-date that I could find. (laughs) L-G-B-T-T-T-Q-Q-I-A-A-P-P. So what I wanted to do is just real quick, kind of shotgun style, define all of these terms, okay? So L for lesbian. A lesbian is a woman who is sexually attracted to other women. Next is the G, gay. A gay person is a man who is sexually attracted to men. Bisexual. A person who is sexually attracted to men and women. Transgender. A person with a gender identity that differs from their assigned sex. So This is not a person that has, gone, that has made physical changes to their body. This is just a person who, in their mind and in their heart, they believe they are a different gender than they are biologically. Transsexual, this is a person who uses medical assistance to transition transition to the gender that they identify with. Um, transvestite, dressing and acting in a style or manner traditionally associated with the opposite sex. Term genderqueer, this is a catch all term for people who don't identify masculine or feminine. And two kind of subcategories of this are one gender fluid, this is a person who prefers to remain flexible about their gender identity. Also, you have agender. This is a person who would identify as having no gender at all, not male or female. Um, Term queer. The term queer might sound offensive, but actually it's accepted now in um, culture. And and the term queer simply refers as an umbrella term to all sexual orientations or gender minorities. Questioning. This is someone who's unsure of their sexual orientation or gender identification. Intersex. This is physical. This is people who possess any of several variations in sex characteristics, including chromosomes, gonads, sex hormones, or genitals that do not fit the, t- the typical definitions for male or female bodies. Uh, the term asexual refers to a lack of sexual attraction to anybody. And... Um, might sound like they wouldn't be in relationships, but they still are in relationships. But they just would say they don't have sexual attraction for the person they're in a romantic relationship with. You have the term ally. This is simply a supporter of the LGBTQ, etc. community. Uh, pansexual. This is somebody who would say they have sexual or romantic attraction to anybody, regardless of that person's sexual orientation or gender identification. And last, polyamorous. These are individuals who have more than one partner with the knowledge and consent of all of the partners. Okay. So, reflections or reactions to that long list. Here's the first thing that I want to say after reading through all those terms. Kids in high schools these days, in our universities, regardless of what we might say from the church about these things... They are growing up believing that this stuff, that this is the paradigm, that this is the most educated understanding of sexual orientation and gender identification. And not only are they believing, and not, not all, sorry, not only are they learning that um, these are all valid expressions of sexuality, but they can point to one of their friends who is each one of these things. They can point to their friend in this class who's asexual. They can point to these two people they know who are pansexual. They can point to this person that they know who is a um, uh, transsexual man or a transgender woman. And so when we come in and we just, without acknowledging any of this stuff, say, oh, there's only one sexual orientation and only two genders, nothing else is true, we automatically come across as ignorant and naive and uneducated about the issues. And it's unfortunate, but that's just how we are perceived, if that is the way that we come about talking about this issue. And so, what I want to suggest is that um, we in the church can do a better job of actually understanding all of the complexities that people in this community experience and feel. Now, we don't have to agree with them. I really loved what Wilson was saying last week, that love and truth are not competing factors, that in loving somebody involves telling them the truth, and vice versa, telling someone the truth involves love. So we don't have to view love and truth as competing factors, and what that means is that we can have black and white opinions about sexuality, about sexual orientation, and about gender identification it's okay for us to have black and white opinions but if the way that we share those black and white opinions looks a lot like this instead of like this then we're automatically just going to push the people away come across as um, just uneducated naive cruel um, backwards and so Um, Because this is, all the stuff I just shared, because this is the dominant way of thinking in our schools, and for the most part in our culture right now, we need to be aware of this stuff. And when we engage in dialogue, we need to um, be willing to talk about these things. My second reflection, I want to start by reading a quote. Um, Quote says this, I'm not sure there's anything worse than causing those whom God loves to question whether he loves them. I can't pronounce that name, so I'm not even going to try. But (laughs) I'm not sure there's anything worse than causing those whom God loves to question whether he loves them. Maybe when I went through all those terms just now, the reaction you felt was disgust. Maybe you felt anger. Maybe you felt, maybe you didn't have a reaction to it. Maybe it just sounded normal and right to you. Point is, um, no matter what, putting people in a place of shame, making people feel like they are disgusting or making people feel like they are unloved, can never be the right option, no matter what. I will take any other route. To sharing truth than that, you know, there's a social scientist named Dr. Brené Brown, and Dr. Brené Brown, um, she set out a couple decades, maybe a decade ago, to answer this question: Is there one fundamental need that every human being across all across all cultures share? Is there one need? And as she did her research, thousands of hours of study, what she came to is that every person, no matter what, needs to belong. They need to feel like they belong. And then she went to study what is the greatest enemy of belonging. And what she came to is shame. That the ex- Experiencing shame is the greatest enemy of belonging. You see, guilt is I did something wrong, but shame is I am something wrong. And when I believe that I am something wrong, as I start to begin the steps of belonging with people, the whole time I'm afraid thinking, man, these pe- I'm putting on a front right now. These people don't know who I really am. Once they see who I really am and they see that I'm not good enough to be in this circle, I'm not good enough to be in this church, I'm not worthy of being friends with this person. They're just going to reject me. Shame is the enemy of belonging. And not only have people in the LGBT community experienced shame in the sense that they don't feel good enough to come to church, but the church has made them feel like they're repulsive. And it's like a double dose. The church has put a double dose of shame on the, on the LGBT community. By the way, whenever I say LGBT, I'm referring to LGBT, TT, et cetera, from now on. <laughs> but every time, um, but so yeah. And so the point I want to make is regard, like check your heart. If you felt like that kind of like disgusted reaction to those terms, then I want to suggest that, there's a place that God could come more fully in your heart to give you the heart of Jesus because Jesus is not disgusted with anybody. And so my prayer is that all of us can continue to take on the heart of Jesus and to not compromise the black and white truth that is out there, but to um, learn to not put people into shame and to never make someone question whether God loves them or not. So, I told you before that I rejected the traditional view of um, the church on sexual orientation for a couple years, specifically when I was 21 and 22. And first, I want to kind of talk about the emotional reason why I rejected it, because I feel like maybe some of you can relate with where I was. You see, I grew up having just kind of like the traditional... I mean, when I was in high school and middle school, I, I know I'm pretty young, but when I was in middle school and high school, Um, being gay was majorly taboo, like all the way up until senior year, like even in the, like, even at the end of high school, you didn't come out because you didn't want to be made fun of and you didn't want to be bullied even at age 17 and 18. It is vastly different now. I remember serving at Vineyard Tri-County, leading a small group. Sanjay Nelson, the guy that does creative stuff here was in the small group And I remember him telling me about how, yeah, you know what? Now in my high school, if you are um, against the, or against, if you don't approve of relationship, like, like uh, gay or lesbian relationships, or if you don't approve of people, um, people's gender identification, you are the minority. You are the outcast. You are the one that everybody is socially, you're the socially ostracized one. And it really shocked me like, cause that was not my experience growing up at all. And so I was, I was really like, wow, things have changed a lot. And so, but when I was in high school, I had, I kind of just had the, um, the view that everyone else had that, uh, that it was weird and it was, you should make fun of people like that. And, um, which were all were, uh, bad beliefs that I had. And so that was kind of my perception but I remember um in age about age 20 I had an experience that really kind of shook that tradition you might say that uh the belief I had um growing up. Wilson and I my younger brother started a lawn business when I was 12. And so we I remember we went to my aunt's house one afternoon I had a lawn mower out in front of me, he had a weed whacker, my brother was doing something, took a picture of us, put it on a business card, started walking around giving away those business cards with people saying, hey, if you want any lawn care done, you know, call this number. And looking back on it, I'm like, man, who would have let a 12-year-old cut their grass? <laughs> but people I got business. So um, and so I started this this lawn care company. And one of the customers that I got was uh, his name was Charles, and Charles was a really kind, nice guy. He lived in an area of town that was residential but also commercial and also kind of like a social gathering place. so he was really passionate about the community, really passionate about um, just kind of like his property and making his property a place that is adding benefit and adding value to the community surrounding him and Really admired that about him. Also, whenever I would come to work at his on his property, because I would do lawn care, um, mowing, weed eating, edging, he would always not just watch me do the work and pay me and say goodbye, but engage me in conversation, ask me how I was doing. He actually cared about me, not just the work that I was doing. So. He was thoughtful. He was hardworking. He was always out there working on some other project while I was working on his lawn. And I just really liked Charles a lot. He's a great guy. A couple years into doing work for him, he hired me and another guy to come to his house and dig these holes. I forget what the holes are for, but to dig holes. And as I'm digging uh, holes with this other guy that was hired, he just kind of casually mentions to me and says, hey, uh. So, Charles's boyfriend, so and so, was doing this, and I stopped him. I was like, What? What'd you say? And he's like, Yeah, Charles's boyfriend. I'm like, What do you mean, Charles's boyfriend? He's like, Charles has a boyfriend. I'm like, It's still not computing. What are you trying to say to me? He's like, Charles is a gay man. And it shocked me. And the reason it shocked me is because I had so many assumptions and so many stereotypical beliefs about. Gay people that were completely unfounded on any actual truth or experience. And because I had had all of these stereotypical assumptions, that experience really jarred me. I was like, wow, like, I never thought a gay man would be like Charles. He is compassionate, he is intelligent, he is hardworking, he is driven. I really admire him in a lot of ways. Like, I want to be like him in a lot of ways. And so that kind, of like, that kind of shook me a little bit. And maybe some of you in here can identify with me. Maybe you have a gay or lesbian or any variation in the LGBT acronym. A friend or a family member who isn't like the stereotypical, like, scary person that the church paints him to be. But it's just like a normal, fun, mature, kind person. Intelligent person. And that is hard. Like I don't. Again, I said I don't have all the answers. I don't have the solutions. Like it'd be easier if, you know, the peop, if the people that we are saying were in the wrong for their um, gender identity expression or their sexual orientation. It'd be easier if they all were out like killing people or something. But that's just not the reality of the world that we live in. So that's kind of like the emotional reason that I. Switch and why I think a lot of people question like the traditional view um, of sexuality and gender identity, but there's also um, there's also people out there, you might call them theologians or biblical scholars who look at the, script, the same scriptures we look at that give us our belief about um, sexual orientation, gender ide- and gender identification. They look at the same scriptures and they come out with a different Conclusion. And in fact, for those two years when I was, um, when I had a different view, I had like, I was like arguing with Christians online all the time about the issue. And I was saying, no, God will bless a relationship between a man and a man because if Christ's love, if the authentic, genuine, self-sacrificing kind of love that Jesus loved with, exists between two men or two women, who are we to say that that is wrong? We should rather say, man, maybe my interpretation of scripture is wrong because love is the highest value. That's the kind of thing that I would say. And I began to be exposed to literature written by Christians who had really convincing arguments from the scriptures that what I believed my whole life was wrong. For example, let me just take you through some of them. Um, so, if you look at Genesis 2, this is the argument about God's intention of marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 2, verses 22 to 24 says this The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the traditional biblical interpretation, which I believe that is taken from this, this passage, is that when God originally created the concept of marriage, his intention was that it would be between a man and a woman, and that that would be how marriage would be for all of time. But one of the rebuttals to that argument that I learned and then became a master of delivering was kind of along the lines of this. You know, there are some things that God creates that don't change, like gravity, but there are other things that God creates which he creates them with um, a certain kind of expression in the beginning, and then as time unfolds and culture develops and society develops, that expression becomes broader and broader. For example, music. When God created music, human beings didn't create music, but In the garden, the only way of expressing music was singing. And then as society grew and as culture grew, there were different ways of expressing music through instruments and singing and instruments. And music is continuing to expand and broaden today. In the same way, I would argue, that's how gender and um, marriage is as well. Again, I'm not saying that this is what I believe now, but this is what I would used to say to people. And I would say that, you know, um, marriage between a man and a woman was the one, kind of like the, the way that the way that God, the first expression of marriage that God created, because we need a procreation. But now as culture and society have developed, there are other expressions of marriage and other expressions of gender. And so that's what I would argue. Now, I, like I said, I don't, I don't hold to that argument anymore. And the reason is because that is in my opinion, and kind of when I was um, making that argument, it was just a way of explaining away that scripture however I could. Like, um, you can get the scriptures to say really whatever you want them to say. That's one reason why the phrase the Bible clearly says, I don't know exactly how I feel about that phrase, because depending upon who is interpreting the Bible to you, they can clearly make it say anything that they want. So, um, as I look back at my heart when I would kind of like propose that argument, it was mainly me just trying to explain away this verse because I didn't like what it was saying. Another example of a verse that people oftentimes quote would be out of the law. So Leviticus, the famous Leviticus 18 verse. Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. So Christians would quote this verse, and back in the day, I would say something like, "Well, yeah, it says that there, but go two chapters further, and it talks about stoning kids for cursing their parents. So can we really use this verse if we don't use this verse too? And so I'd explain it way in that way. And I don't say I think that's valid. Like a lot of the stuff in the law I mean, I, a lot of the stuff in the law was only meant for the Jewish people to reveal a certain thing. And um, I do think things have not changed, but um, Christ completed what the law was stating. Another famous passage is the Romans 1 passage. It's Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 it says this For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So that verse seems pretty clear to not condone homosexuality. But how I'd argue back in the day, how you hear some people argue these days as well. In that passage, um, the word lust is used. And so really, this is just another form of um, sexual immorality. And yeah, sexual morality, um, homosexual or heterosexual, is wrong. But that's not the kind of relationship that exists between men and men and women and women today. And that's not the kind that Paul was saying was wrong. You also have the argument from 1 Corinthians 6. Real quickly. Um and I'm just so real quick, the reason I'm going through all these right now is because I think it's important that we as Christians understand the kinds of conversations that are happening out there right now. If this is the first time that you're hearing that people interpret the scriptures a different way, I think it's good. And we know how we interpret the scriptures, we know what we believe about what the Bible says. But it's important to understand that what we believe by the Bible is not the only thing that's being talked about and the only thing that's being believed out there. And so my goal is that we all can become more aware, like I was saying at the beginning. We can become more aware of the kinds of conversations and the kinds of discussions that are happening. So, again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So again, that one seems to be pretty clear. Men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, um, to clarify that statement, Paul here is talking about people who have Chosen not to become born again. Because when you become born again, who you are is no longer defined by what you do, but by what Christ Jesus did. And any sin that we committed, past, present, or future, is covered by Christ. And we enter the kingdom of God because of him. So this verse is not saying that, hey, if you have ever lied before, well, sorry, you're not getting in. Or if you've ever been drunk before, sorry, you're not getting in. It's talking about people who have chosen not to be born again and kind of taken that on as their identity so anyways um, nor men who practice homosexuality if you look at that word homosexuality in the Greek there's an argument that is made that the word is primarily referring to male prostitutes and to not simply men who practice homosexuality so again people will make that argument I don't have time to go into all of the scriptures but I just wanted to kind of help you guys become aware of the conversations that are happening Those were like the scriptures that I would refute. And here's some of the arguments that I would make as a Christian who um, believed that God was, that the concept of marriage had evolved and the concept of gender had evolved from what God originally created. Uh, Colossians 3.22 says this, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So that's a tough verse. Because back in the 1800s, there were churches and Christians who would use that verse to justify the slavery that was happening in their communities. And then you had social activists who were saying no, and they were Christians, who were saying no... This kind of slavery is wrong. This is not the kind of slavery that Paul was talking about in the Bible. And people would say, well, no, the Bible clearly says. Same thing, there's a verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. that says, women are to be silent in churches. We don't follow that one. <laughs> you know? You don't really find any Christian church following that one. And it's because that was a specific thing spoken to a specific context. And so people will say, well, the topic of sexuality and homosexuality and gender identification is the same way that what is said in the Bible is talking to a specific context, but shouldn't be applied universally today. So that is, those were some of the like biblical, you might say logical arguments that, would be made that kind of like convinced me and helped cause me to change my belief for a couple of years. But in the midst of all of this, as I had kind of switched, you know, switched my views, I realized some things. One, like I said, Wilson and I, we would debate about this topic. I don't maybe maybe I didn't say that yet, but Wilson and I, while I, um, while while him and I disagreed on this topic, we would debate about it nonstop. I would post something on Facebook. He would get on Facebook and start debating me from Florida, where he was and why I am. I'd be debating him back. And when he got back from Florida and we started hanging out again, and um, a year later we started doing ministry together, one thing I realized is that although I felt like I had the more uh, loving belief toward the LGBT community, well, I thought that I was the more like the, the more loving person. He actually did more to love on the LGBT community than I ever did. Like I would talk, I would be posting online about how I supported so and so, but he'd actually be going downtown and praying for people, and hugging people, and um, and just hanging out with people in the LGBT community, and he didn't condone it at all. He believed that it was pretty black and white and that it wasn't God's best. But he was doing more to love on these people than I ever did. And so that kind of impacted me. Also, remember one year we went down to the gay pride rally and we were going down there and doing evangelism and um, telling people God loved them and giving people uh, prophetic words. In fact, um, we had a sign that said, um, tattoo interpretation, and so you can tell that kind of lured people in. And um, when they would come up, one of us would just look at their tattoo and ask God, hey, what do you want to say to them um, based on their tattoo? And so then we would tell them something that we felt like God was saying. And I swear we, we had a line of like 40 people that wanted to come get there. So we got to like give like words of encouragement to like 40 people down at the gay pride rally. Like we had a line. And... Um, people accepted Jesus down there. Members of the LGBT community accepted Jesus for the first time at that gay pride rally. <clears throat> and the kingdom was really breaking through. But another thing is, you had the, at that gay pride rally, you had the typical protesters, the hateful ones, the ones kind of saying, you know, like all gays go to hell or whatever it might be. <laughs> And then you had other protesters who were actually protesting the protesters. And those protesters, I think it was one from like a Methodist or Presbyterian church, they believed like I used to believe. And they had a sign that said something like, you know, um, God blesses gay relationships or something like that. And as I think about that church, and then I think about um, Wilson and the group, the, the, the people that led the group to do evangelism, I realized the kingdom of God broke through way more through these people who didn't actually condone anything that was going on, but were willing to put themselves out there and show love in a real way to people than to the people that simply were holding signs saying, hey, we agree with you. I realized that it's not agreement that's going to open people's hearts up to the gospel, but it's actual love. It's actually being Jesus. See, I thought for a while that if I can just explain away everything that this certain person might not like about the church, then I can get them to accept Jesus. And so for me, it was all intellectual focus. I was changing my theology every which way. And I thought that that would um, impact people for the gospel. But I led zero people to Christ that way. Two years, I was an online Facebook warrior. Hour a day. (laughs) debating an hour a day debating with christians so that atheists would see it for an hour a day thinking that that would open people's hearts up to the gospel while wilson and others that were in my life were actually going downtown and doing jesus doing the love of jesus and seeing people radically impacted so that affected me i was like wow um That was one of the things that caused me to kind of change back to a more traditional view of the subject. Lastly, I want to show you scripturally where I became utterly convinced that the way that I had changed my beliefs was wrong. And I'm doing that just so you can see my journey, okay? So if you go back to Romans 1, you'll remember that. The re, kind of like the rebuttal to that argument so the traditional argument is Paul says that men were committing indecent acts with other men and received the due penalty of their error. The traditional argument says so um, when homosexuality is practiced it is an error because of that. The rebuttal to that argument which um, Christians that that are uh, you you might say pro LGBT would offer is that that's only talking about lust and only talking about sexual immorality. It's not talking about a committed relationship. Okay. This is the response to that rebuttal. Okay. Sorry. It's trying to keep the logic line of logic clear. And what it really comes down to is context. You know, context is so critically important when you're studying the scriptures. For example, Imagine that, so we have a room for nursing mothers in the church, okay? Imagine we were having a problem with people, like, accidentally walking in on it. So we put a sign that said, stop nursing mothers. Stop nursing mothers, okay, (laughs) on the door. Without context, people can take that any way that they want, okay? For example, they can take it, stop nursing mothers. So a command to mothers to stop nursing their babies, You can take it that way if you want. Also, you can take it like, stop nursing mothers. Like, prevent mothers from nursing their babies. You can take it, um, stop stop nursing mothers. Like, the mothers are the ones being nursed. (laughs) Stop doing that. (laughs) So, it requires an understanding of context to know, okay... What this sign means is stop, don't come in here. There are nursing mothers in the room. In the same way, we have to understand context when we're reading the scriptures. Because if we don't understand context, we might read words that cause us to think something that's totally not what the original author was trying to say. You know, Whoever put this stop nursing mother sign on the door, they weren't trying to tell you to like, stop mothers from nursing their babies. Or that there's like, a problem with mothers being nursed and they need to stop that. They were trying to tell you, hey, there's nursing mothers in here, so stop. Don't come in. But you only know that if you understand the context. Okay? So, now that I've convinced you the context is important, let's read Romans 1. <clears throat> Verses 18 to 25 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, by the way, I forgot. I'm supposed to tell you the context of this. (laughs) The context... (laughs) The context to this passage is this. Romans was Paul's... It was different from other letters. The letter to the Ephesians, to the Corinthians, to the Colossians. These were letters that were written addressing certain issues in churches. And this was Paul giving kind of like his advice and his counsel and his commands to these churches on how to operate book of Romans. It was written to the church in Rome, but the purpose was less correctional. And it was more on just giving the theology of the gospel. Okay. The theology of the good news gospel means good news. And the starting place for the good news is that there's bad news. The reason there's good news is that there's bad news. The bad news is that humanity had fallen and become slaves to sin. The good news was that Jesus, both God and man, came to earth, lived a sinless life, atoned for the deaths, or atoned for all of humanity's sin, resurrected, defeated, death, we rose with him, etc. Okay? So, but the starting place of the good news is the bad news, and the bad news is the fall. And so, really, what Paul does then makes perfect sense. When he starts to explain the theology of the gospel, he starts with the bad news. He gives his account of the fall. That's what we're reading in verses 18 through 25. Paul's account of the Adam and Eve story, just written in different terms. Okay. So with that said, let's read it now. Verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's Paul's account. Of the fall of man. And what he says is that man exchanged what was right, exchanged what was natural, extra- exchanged what was in their nature for what was wrong, unnatural, not in their nature. That is kind of like Paul's one liner to explain what the fall was. The fall was an exchange of a good thing for a bad thing. The fall was an exchange of a natural thing for an unnatural thing. The very next two verses are the verses that talk about women abandoning natural function for men and men committing shameless acts with other men. So what we see there is that is a common technique for teaching in the Bible and present day. I did it this morning. You make a theoretical, abstract statement, and then you give a practical example to help the listeners understand what you were saying. Okay? It's, yeah, it's like um, if I were to say, the Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay? That's kind of like the theoretical, abstract statement that I might say. So that means when you get home and you want to watch TV, but she wants to have quality time, turn the TV off. Do you guys understand? That's an example explaining the theoretical statement. Okay. So in the same way, when Paul says that humanity exchanged what was um, natural for what was unnatural, and then he says the example about homosexuality, he's doing the same thing. He's using homosexuality as an example of what it looks like to exchange what is natural for what is unnatural. I remember doing that Bible study in Skyline, Chile, with my friend Chris, and I realized, wow, I think I was wrong when I started when I switched what my belief was. I think that what I um, what I heard from um, Van and from my dad and from Wilson all along was actually the right belief. Now, um, simply just going to someone and giving that scriptural argument is not going to convince anybody. Like I said, it's not going to be worse, but it's going to be the love of Jesus that allows people to become open to the gospel. But just for all, just so all of you all, I just wanted to share with all of you what my journey looked like, that, um, it was that kind of like scriptural argument that caused me to switch back. And so I want to end with a couple of practical takeaways from all of this. One is that I think we need to value understanding as we are interacting with people. Like, we shouldn't just go in there wanting to tell them what we believe is true, but we should actually ask them questions, be curious about them. This is in all situations, not just interacting with people in the LGBT community. But we should go in with a genuine desire to understand where they're at and where they're coming from. And I hope that going through some of the stuff we went through this morning broadened all of our understanding of the issue. It's pretty, it's, there is black and white truth that we believe, but the issue is a lot more complex than we may have thought. Second, we have to remove any ounce of disgust from our heart. As long as we are disgusted with people, we are never going to be able to effectively show them Jesus. <clears throat> and then third, we've got to allow people to be in process. Belonging is the fundamental human need. No matter, first people belong, then we help them believe, and then they behave. It's not get them to behave so that they can believe, and then they'll belong. It's let it's they belong first, then they believe, and then they behave. So, everybody, take a deep breath. <laughs> um, let's pray. And as I'm praying, ushers, you can come forward. So Father, we thank you that the love of Jesus and that your truth um, are not in competition. We ask that you continue to show us how to love, continue to show us what truth is, and how to best communicate it to people that you love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, ushers, you can start receiving the offering. So, like I was saying, um, more than anything else, what I think I was hoping for this morning was that there would be increased awareness about what is going on in our culture and about even the arguments that are happening between Christians. And so, with all that said, we're going to go into worship. Feel free, once you pass the basket, to stand. You can come to the front if you want. You can go to the back if you want. And let's just take some time adoring Jesus together, okay? Band, take us away.